0: When you can get yourself to that level of a discipline in company building, I think it, it changes so much about how you approach company building. It changes so much about this notion of it's not just about working harder, it's about understanding the, the, the linkage between your actions and the outcomes. With that linkage and some evidence around it, you know where to focus that, that will have the biggest outcomes for the business. <music>
1: hi and welcome to greater than here you'll listen to conversations with business leaders on how they build remarkable businesses putting values to work for their organization and their customers i'm lauren sinreich assistance thinker and design strategist principal of whole innovation and design and host of this podcast I'm here today with Zach Nees. He's the Managing Director of the Techstar Sustainability Accelerator at, that's in partnership with the Nature Conservancy. I'm really excited to have you here today, Zach. Thanks for being oh, it's
0: here. It's great to be with you.
1: Just to give uh, the listeners a little bit of an intro and understanding of your background, can you tell us a little bit about your your journey uh, personally, professionally, and how how you got to to this point?
0: Yeah, Um, you know, it all starts kind of growing up in a family business where, um, you know, I, I got to watch, uh, you know, family making payroll and serving customers from from an early age. Literally, the, the earliest picture I have of me is um, sitting, playing with uh, punch tape uh, in the family business. So that both dates me and gives you a little bit of context for uh, uh, just how d- business has been really part of my DNA since a very, very early child. Started my first business when I was 13, uh, learned to program uh, when I was nine and uh my second business started when i was 16. then uh you know went to work for a company here in in colorado that was pretty prominent at the time called cork where i was involved in the desktop publishing kind of category creation work that uh that they were doing an amazing kind of first job Um, and then uh you know based on the experience of that i was like oh well, this is you know building software and servicing you know millions of customers that's that's pretty easy to do i'll I'll start a company again, and and that one, you know, learned a lot from it. It didn't quite go the direction that we were hoping, ultimately. We, we were able to sell it pretty, pretty early on, but never quite created the impact that we were trying to create with that business. Um, then I lo- did a little bit of a tour in, in uh, you know, big company land again, and then landed at, at Rally Software, um, which was uh, just an amazing experience where I learned so much about uh, building a business, the impact a business can have, the integration of of company and community and and, and larger vision. And then uh, from there, I went to Techstars and been a part of running a couple of our Boulder programs. Uh, I was also responsible for education for a little bit at Techstars and now super thrilled to be working with the Nature Conservancy and, and um, uh, helping entrepreneurs back again on our program side.
1: Hmm. It's a really good journey. And I love that you started so young and to think that you started programming at at nine, you know, that wasn't available to, to most people to think that you might've even had a computer at nine for some. Right. And so that's, that's pretty phenomenal.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, back then that was, it was pretty atypical that you'd have access, but again, it was due to the family business. We had, you know, nearly a million dollar mainframe system that I was able to play with in nights and evenings. And then, you know, eventually that morphed into, uh, cheaper computers and then ultimately having a, you know, Macintosh when they were, first came out because, that's where the business was morphing to. And I could, you know, what was play to me was sitting at that computer and writing code.
1: (laughs) I love, so, you know, it's clear that you came, you have a very tech heavy background, you know, you came into business with very much of a tech focus. And you also grew up being an entrepreneur, you've been in business since you were a teenager, right? And one of the things that really stands out to me in our conversations up until this point is you managed to strike this balance or this, This mix that I don't feel like many business leaders that I've spoken with achieve that they have this heavy um, credential set on the business side and on the technical side, Mm -hmm. as well as on the the culture side of things. Uh, And it's clear that it's something that you value very much uh, and you take organizational psychology and individual psychology very seriously in the role of business. So I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit about has that always been clear to you, or at what point did you feel like that was? that was a really important part of entrepreneurship?
0: Yeah, my you know, my degree is in computer science and I basically have a double degree in psychology as well. Hmm. There was a little bit of a, a war going on between the engineering school uh, and the arts and sciences uh, school when I was going to college and it made it incredibly hard to get double, a double degree from, from both colleges. Uh, but I took all of the classes that would, were necessary to get a degree in psychology. And for me, it's it's always been I've always had this fascination with how things work, and you know, part of that was very early on getting really fascinated with physics because I was just fascinated with how the physical world works. I got really into computers because I, I thought it was interesting that you know I could I could build things and I could create things, and then the psychology side was really trying to get into deeper understanding of these human beings that are all roaming around, how do we work? How do we think about things? How do those, uh our beliefs show up in the, in the work that we do and the companies we build. And, you know, from a pragmatic standpoint too, just thinking about, well, if you're building a product, you're going to build it for the human beings using it. And their adoption is largely based on the psychology of how they view your product, how they view their current situation. So, to me, also, psychology was a, an interesting way into understanding the human side of building a business, both outwardly and, you know, for me, initially, it was about understanding the, the market, understanding the customers, trying to figure out what do the users want. And then as I kind of matured in my career, really realized that a huge element of that is also the people that are building the software, that are building the business and, what are the psychological dimensions of that, and how do you create the environment and the container so that those human beings are are doing great work on behalf of of their customers? Steve Farber has this this great line that I like to use all the time, which is doing what you love in service of those who love what you do. And it was you know really my experience uh, to some degree the the you know the third company that I started, but really Rally was was the place where where those concepts really came to life for me.
1: That's an amazing quote. I love it. So is that is has that kind of become your your informal definition of business?
0: <laughs> well, it, to me it's it's a really critical lens to view what you're doing. I really think it's important um because, you know, time is is precious and asking yourself the question, am I doing is what I'm doing the right thing for me at this time? And to me, that that quote really helps put into focus a little bit of criteria to evaluate that. Am I doing what I love? And am I doing it for people who, and in service, meaning that I'm not doing it entirely for my own self-gain, um, but really in, in, in service of others? And those people love what what we're doing.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important, a really important, reminder, uh, especially in the time of where business and entrepreneurship, the, the stories that get told so often are of the, the unicorns and the, the, the companies that make it to public offering. And, you know, when those are the exception, you know, really to the number of millions of small, small privately owned businesses. Right. Um, and so those those cases often demonstrate a different type of business that are set on goals and metrics and uh, objectives that are very different from uh, many of the businesses that run the run around the world and in this country. Right.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, certainly the, the, the dynamics around fundraising, the dynamics around, you know, where the business goes and, and the, the cycle of money, I think drives quite a bit of that because, when you have investors, especially institutional investors, it can change that dynamic and you know to me, part of the really interesting thing now is thinking through what are the different mechanisms that both allow money to to funnel into businesses and I'm not trying to knock or bad mouth or say anything you know negative about the the structure of venture capital. There's certainly a lot of things that can can be improved around it. thinking about though it is a huge engine of innovation i mean the money that comes into businesses to really take a chance and and try to create radical change. Um, Sometimes those those take quite a bit of money. But often, though, there there can be this dynamic where it kind of puts the the, the company, the stake, the the customers, uh, you know, can put them at odds. And so, you know, I like to view it through the lens of integration, which is how do you integrate these different uh, groups together so that you can get the best results possible?
1: Having having successfully uh, gone public with uh, with one of the companies, and you know now also leading a an accelerator, um, what are your what are your thoughts on on integration? What did it, what have you seen work, and what do you think the, the pitfalls are in that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, you alluded to to our IPO with Rally, and we were the first B Corp to go public, uh, which was a, a huge matter of, of pride for us. Mm. And yeah, there is this dynamic of both, you know, looking at an IPO or looking at these these exit events, um, because the people from an institutional level that put money into a company, I mean, they the the social contract is I'm going to give you this money with the expectation you're going to give me at some point a much bigger chunk of money back. And thinking through from a company standpoint, though, that yes, while well, that's true, and what are the other dynamics at play? You've got employees. What are you you doing to create a fulfilling environment for them? Um, What are you doing for the the customers and creating a long-term durable product that's not, you know, immediately going to go away? And what are you doing for the larger community? Meaning the change that you're trying to create in your market uh, with your employees, what's the larger impact on the community? And, you know, for me, it's, it's, such an honor to be able to work with a lot of businesses now that are asking those questions of of themselves of their business and ensuring that there is alignment initially among uh investors that are that see this same type of integration see the same path that it's it's not about returns at all all cost it's it's about you know doing the appropriate long-term things and you know to me the thing that really came to light too was as I've kind of morphed over my career of thinking about, you know, initially, well, it's all about the product. and This is my engineering mindset. It's all about the product. It's all about getting the technology right. Then through a bunch of hard knocks, realizing, well, no, it's about really co-creating an appropriate product and a business with the market, understanding what they want, blending your insights, because often entrepreneurs can see the world in a very different way. Um, they, They can see how things can be and they stand in that future almost and have to go through this process of pulling the market
1: Hmm.
0: uh, toward the future that they're kind of almost already living in. And then, you know, seeing, you know, that then morph into, well, it's not just about the the customers. It's not just about the product and the technology. It's about the larger community and, and what is the company doing to support the larger community. And then really, especially thinking about What's the role of the company to create a fulfilling environment for uh, the people doing the work? So, you know, one of the, the questions that I now am asking is, when you think about company culture, how can you create an environment where those doing the work are doing the best work of their careers? To me, the, the, a real highlight, and knowing that you've been successful of that, is when you're talking to people, you know, maybe 5, 10, 15 years after they've worked at a company, And they recall, yeah, that was the place where I did my best work. And to me, that's a sign that leadership is doing it right. The company is is structured in such a way that um, you're going to get amazing results from the people in the business. And you're also giving back to them in the notion of skill building, in insight gain, in the ability to have experiences they wouldn't have necessarily had any other place. So those are some of the things that that you know I really focus on now. When I'm I'm talking to entrepreneurs, is to understand, you know, what's what's their view on on the future, and then also thinking about well, what's your view on the company that you want to build. And to me, it's not about just making the product. I mean, when you start a company, when you when you're an entrepreneur, it's about yeah, you have to build a product or an offer. It's about building that. It's about also building the market because companies that, that tend to have a big or disproportionate impact on uh, uh, on the market and disproportionate returns tend to be ones that create categories. And then I think a huge element of it too is building the company and it's interesting because you know with impact companies there's techniques for that. We've got customer development that helps us understand uh, you know Steve blank's work that helps us understand, What does the customer really want? We've got this kind of adaptive way of building that, uh, Lean Startup being a great example of that from Eric Reese. And then, you know, some of the work around category design and uh, book Play Bigger is a great example of this. But then thinking about where's the forefront of being able to create a culture in a company where people don't just kind of just show up and get stuff done, but they can really flourish. And, What's the context what's the systems? what are the the beliefs that enable that flourishing because I find that when the uh, when the people doing the work are loving it when they're flourishing, it creates a better product and it creates i think a much more generative stance with how the company interacts with the community and the overall um, you know what the what the product and what the business is about what's the mission that you're on
1: mm, there's so much to dig into. That. <laughs> I feel like I could uh, pick apart like 50 different conversation uh, streams from that and just talk for an hour on those alone. You know, thinking about the experience of working somewhere where you're enabled to flourish and do the best work of your life. There's, there's a lot of thought that goes into, you know, there's a lot of different experiments and theories about how a company is best structured, you know, so that's, uh, a big part of a personal flourishing is how you operate within the broader group. Um, mm-hmm. In your experience, what what have you seen in the way that businesses are structured or groups that seems to have a, a, a notable effect, positively or negatively, on on whether that dynamic is possible? You know, like uh, Zappos that's playing with the 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 um, what is it called the holography? Hi, um,
0: uh, yeah, I'm blanking on the term. I'm
1: blanking oh, out on it as I, well, but you know, there's the teal organization. There's all these sort of things. Yeah. So curious to hear what your thoughts are on that.
0: You know, the place that and the model that I like, the, the place I started the model that I like around with this is, is, you know, Dan Pink's autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Hmm. I think that's a really approachable model. I think you know, I've it was the model that I used quite a bit as I was part of leading uh, various teams at Rally, and. You know, most of the people that, that work with me, I, at some point, I probably let them borrow, or I bought them that book um, because I thought it was really approachable and has a, an interesting impact on, on the overall work. Because I, I, you know, there's such a direct correlation in my experience between that sense of autonomy, um, the, the the shared purpose that comes with with um, being able to articulate, you know, where are we headed, and then. You know, the people that, at least I like to work with, are, are people who come come at, at their work and, and continually ask them themselves, how can we improve this? So that, to me, is a model that's, that's really powerful. When you think about Lean, and you know, I referenced Lean Startup, if you go back to Lean Manufacturing, one of the core principles and core values of Lean is continuous improvement and respect for people. And that's the bedrock that all the practices around Lean Manufacturing are based. And I find that's an you know, maybe a simpler version of autonomy, mastery, and purpose, but often a little bit harder to to achieve because of its kind of you know simplicity of statement at least, it's very hard to do. And those are there's some of the things that that I've really used to to think through that. There's another piece too, which is the psychological safety of showing up at work as as who you are. Um, you know, I find so many organizations and I think it's a natural result of, of, you know, when you have groups of people, it it can get a little bit complicated. And so many people, I think, feel like when they show up for work, they have to put on almost this mask or this suit of armor that um, is a projection of what they think other people want of them in a work context. And I'm also fascinated with the the tools and techniques that leaders can use and and team members as well. When thinking about how do we create an environment where it's okay to be who we are when we come to work, and as you know, as we record this, we're you know several months into the the COVID pandemic, and you know the the phrase that I've used a lot when I'm on video calls with people, and you know their kids show up or their dogs barking or or something, I'm like, you know, they apologize, and I'm like, no, 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 I actually find it really delightful that there is now this this. Uh, sort of unavoidable integration between Mm. our lives and our work. And no longer can we hide behind the fact that we have kids or that we feel weird about some aspect of what our day-to-day life is. Like It's all showing up right now. And I know for a lot of people, uh, that can be really hard. And I think a piece of it too is also highlighting the fact that often there is this social construct that we are a different person at work than we are in the rest of our lives. And I think anytime there's a separation between what's going on inside you as a person and what's going on outside in your world, that leads to, uh, you know, it leads to bad places and Mm. it leads to misery and suffering. And, you know, so for me, the, the, the context and how do you create the sense of safety where people can show up because I, I think it's inappropriate to ask people to show up as truly who they are if they feel unsafe doing that. Yeah, absolutely. To me the, the 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 question is how do we create work environments where that dichotomy goes away and it's replaced by the safety of just being who we are.
1: Yeah, in my work coaching, i see this A lot in these dynamics where they find themselves in a situation where they're disempowered, their hands are kind of tied behind their backs, and suddenly everything that they do, uh, you know, for a little while is uh, not necessarily accepted because it's not what's, what's predicted or what's assumed to be the, 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 the right way necessarily, and then it creates this dynamic where um, you start doubting yourself and there's no way that you can actually contribute your best thought or something new and different and innovative if, if you're not being supported in that way or given the space to be pre- bringing new solutions to the table. And so it's actually quite toxic once you find yourself in that dynamic.
0: Yeah, it can, it can be hard to it can be hard to escape it and and back when I was doing a lot of work around kind of uh, culture change around agile and lean transformations, one of the questions I would often ask is, when I was getting to learn an organization before I'd begin recommending some some things that they could do, is I would ask, tell me stories about what, what do people do around here to get rewarded, and tell me stories about what people do around here that results in punishment, and what does that punishment look like? And I often found that to be a really interesting way to, to learn what's it really like in the company, and what's getting reinforced, what's getting... Um, you know what's trying what's trying to be dampened in the organization, and that could always help me understand a little bit more about the just safety and and human dynamics that are that are going on in the organization.
1: What do you find are often the drivers for a environment that's not psychologically safe?
0: Yeah, there's a couple of different models I mean probably at its core is leaders showing up and working out their stuff um and or, or leaders showing up that haven't worked through their own yeah. personal stuff and are working it out in the context of of the people around them. To me yeah. that's a huge a huge contributor. And you know, we all have our stuff. And to me that's the when you think about that that core value of continuous improvement. Yeah, there's the continuous improvement of are you you know, are you optimizing a process so that it goes smoother? Are you uh, streamlining a product onboarding? Are you, you know, working through optimizing the sales pipeline? And uh, are you working through your own stuff? Are you, as a leader and an individual contributor, confronting those things that, that make it hard for you to fully show up? And how are you working through those dimensions of improvement?
1: I think that's such an important connection. You, this this idea, you, you know, you're talking about psychological safety, and then the lean methodology and continuous improvement. At first, they seem very unrelated and separate areas of work. But at the end of the day, continuous improvement is only possible if you're able to stop and and really assess authentically where you are showing up and where you're not showing up. And that takes a lot of vulnerability to, to be able to to kind of stop and, and let down your guard and do that work, you know, but at yep. the same time, you know, being vulnerable has not been rewarded. You know, the culture for a long time did not, did not respect uh, or think that vulnerability had a place in the workplace, but you know if you look at these methodologies that have been really successful think about you know six sigma or lean really come out of the toyota's manufacturing system model right from a yep. lot of that and for decades people tried to replicate it thinking like oh this continuous improvement is very much those metrics that you were you were you're pointing towards there and they were never uh they were just not hitting the mark they were not achieving the same kind of success that toyota had achieved in this operating system uh and and consistently what was missing was that element of personal uh, space for personal failure recognizing where you fell short support to grow there and, and the structure around that improvement so it's not just like you're expected to increase your numbers there's actually a structure around that that, that supports people to to identify and then grow beyond that
0: yeah and and to me that's the uh, that's the respect the people um pillar of of lean which is acknowledgement that underneath it all it's people that are making this all happen and we should respect them and there's some really interesting practices that go with that you know toyota was pretty legendary during recessions that they wouldn't lay people off they would take the extra extra human capacity because it wasn't being utilized in production and they would be continuing to to create optimizations uh you know in lean transformations one of the pillars of a lean transformation is is that as people make improvements as the system improves, it will not result in you losing your job. because right. if people think that, oh, if I make this process five times more uh, efficient and this overall approach more effective, uh, there won't be space for me anymore. And you know to me, there's there's always this kind of interesting social contract between employees and the business, and you know, different cultures approach that differently. The, the way lean approached that uh, lean approaches that is, the social contract is, is of respect in both directions.
1: Important point to that is that the reason why Toyota was able to do that was because they actually were operating sometimes in ways that were counter to mainstream business sensibility of you have this stockpile of resources and and money sitting in a bank that they would think that you need to then invest somewhere else to have it grow. And Toyota wanted it available so that it was accessible in times of need to support its company. And so uh, they would actually operate against the advice of uh, the investors or uh, but then when it came down to it, they were able to weather these kinds of uh, downturns because they were able to have that money accessible and, and put that back into their company and the employees, which is counterintuitive to business uh, practice, but yep. it's actually what's made that work for them.
0: Yeah. one. I mean, my my introduction into lean manufacturing was a lecture long, long ago, um, and it was all about the historical constructs of the the different kind of industrial methodologies that I found just truly fascinating and and the the thing that I pulled away from it that I still remember this day is the observation that lean manufacturing was born out of resource scarcity hmm. and American management was born out of resource abundance and those that fundamental place of of origin really shaped the the beliefs and the philosophies that then came through in, in the various management techniques
1: that's really interesting because you know, I'm just I'm just playing with this thought here, because there's a, a big there's a big conversation around scarcity versus abundance mindset and a scarcity mindset sometimes doesn't help you. But, you know, lean and when applied in the robust methodology that it is not just ruthless efficiency. Right. right. Um, actually, does not end up in a scarcity mindset by any means?
0: Yeah, no, and that's why I was real specific in my wording of resource scarcity and resource yeah. abundance. And, um, you know, because if you think about the, the uh, you know, small geography of Japan, you think about where they were as a nation as, as these methodologies were being born. Um, yeah, there was a lot of, of resource scarcity. But if you think again about the notion of respect for people, and you think about continuous improvement, I mean, th- those are the bedrock of an abundance mindset.
1: Hmm. So what do you think it is that's, that we're seeing in the American entrepreneurial space that we can move towards uh, respect for people and continuous improvement in a uh, more effective way?
0: Yeah, I I think it's, it's being able to articulate what is the purpose of the business you're trying to create? Um, You know, so much, of the purpose as we learn about it kind of in the in the press is really around it's it's all about the notion of the the shareholder the wow. the, the firm is all about uh, maximizing shareholder value and I, there's some interesting consequences that come from that belief and you know i like to think about yeah shareholders are important and there's a much bigger picture because if you you know often in entrepreneurship i'll I'll make the distinction with entrepreneurs between um, discovering a a local max and discovering a global max so often you know as a company's being built they get some product traction and they think oh we're onto it and then they hit this spot where it kind of stalls out and often what's happening there is they hit this local maximum and need to step back and understand oh there's a there's a bigger thing we're trying to go to there's a way we need to move the business that maybe we we walk back down the hill, so to speak, and actually shrink the business for a short period of time to get on a trajectory that enables us to build something much bigger. And
1: you don't see many people being willing to do that, though.
0: It's it's hard, um, and yeah, not a lot of people are willing to. Although the the what I think of as some of the best entrepreneurs I've worked with have that um, have the grit and have the the vision to do that. And I, I think that's why, you know, having blending insights with a vision around the future that can be helps you identify if you're at a local uh, max versus a global max. And you know, sometimes it takes mentors and other people uh, around the company to help an entrepreneur see that. Um, but you know, to me, that's a um, that's a critical thing in company building. But mm-hmm. I think it's also a, a critical way to look at just the overall concept of what is a business about. Maximizing for shareholder value, my belief is, is that that will get you to, from an overall business context, to a local maximum, where we're kind of experiencing pieces of it now. I think looking beyond that, there's an opportunity to think about, well, what's the global max here? And and there's, you know, we're all prone at times to black and white thinking. And I think there's a, a black and white dichotomy that's really formed around this, which is you're either a you know unicorn chasing all about shareholder value company or you're a do gooder and you'll putter along with your business for a while and you'll do something interesting and it'll be good for for people to me the the local max or the sorry the global max is thinking about how do we break through that black and white thinking and ask ourselves how can we have both how can we have a company that is returning you know, appropriate returns to shareholders and keeps the shareholders in mind and keeps the larger community keeps the employees keeps um, the larger market and category creation in mind and i think it's a it's a bit of a false dichotomy to think you can only have one of those and you know to me the work we did at rally was an interesting proof point in that i mean yeah we didn't become this you know multi-billion dollar company And we were able to appropriately balance um, to the scale that we got returns for shareholders. We made our investors very happy in our our IPO um, who invested in us in the very early days. And um, we were were trying to do what we could to benefit the community and to to fundamentally make some changes around how work gets done. How How do we work in a way that's affirming to those doing the work and produces higher quality uh, Cost less to produce, and you can bring new products to market faster. Hmm. To me, the, the the power, and it's not easy to figure out that and where um, the and thinking is is in some ways harder than or thinking. And I think it's it's really important for us to keep both of these pictures in mind as we build businesses.
1: I mean, if you think about that, just and or, you're inevitably able to achieve. Greater value because you're less exclusionary. An or means that there's either this or that, whereas there's an and. It's inclusive, and you would assume that in that and, even though maybe more work, that there is ultimately, uh, it's not exclusionary. It doesn't negate. It's it's you know the, inevitably that there's going to be more value when you account for more than one context or variable or yep. end user, right?
0: Yeah, and and there's a challenge there, which is. You know, in company building, especially in the early days, maintaining focus is essential. Being yeah. able to say no to all the things that could potentially distract you so that you can focus on the few things that will um, have the highest likelihood to move the business forward. And there are times where having that and mindset can, um, you know, add on and multiply and take away focus. <clears throat> to me, that's the the challenge is how do you keep an expansive view while really um, giving yourself the ability to focus down. And and again, Lean and Agile, I think, provide us a lot of interesting tools and techniques here where we can, on a cadence, be very focused. And then at the end of that kind of heartbeater cadence, you know, metaphorically look around and go, okay, where did we get? Where are we at now to our overall vision? Where are we at to the, the principles that guide this company? Level set based on that. And then... You know, go back into another short period of time where you're, you know, hyper focused on one particular area. Again, to me, it's that uh, almost a paradox of being uh, open to the possibilities while being really hyper focused on a, a very few particular things at any one time.
1: Do you feel like it slows you down? You know, I, I have this personal belief that at the pace at which many companies operate, uh, it's really hard to stop and and do the Extra mental reasoning of the and, and so when you're work, you're moving at a million miles a, a minute, um, it's it's kind of hard to stop and to really critically think about that. Uh, do you think it slows you down, or do you think you can do that still at that speed?
0: No, I, I think it actually speeds you up. Um, one of the one of the uh, workshops that I do for a lot of the TechStars programs and a lot of the, the companies that I've worked with is really all around making the distinction between motion and progress. Mm. What in what you described, what I heard was, we are. Um, when you look at the motion of a company, it can look very frantic, and it can look like uh, there's there's no more room for any more motion. And I would agree, there are a lot of companies trapped in that place.
1: Mm.
0: What I like is thinking about the reframe of it's. Yeah, you have to do work, but. The key is to do the work that leads to the progress that moves the business forward in the way that you want to and there's you know such a a belief system around especially in startups especially in in american uh corporate environment which is the only thing that matters is that we're all working at a hundred percent and there's such a false trap around that which is again gets back to continuous improvement which is if you could spend Uh, you know, just in your day, I mean, you could think about this right now, think about your week and ask yourself, are there things that I do over and over throughout the week that if I spent one hour right now eliminating or automating that, uh, I would get back hours over the next few weeks? And most of us can think of kind of those small things that, yeah, that's, that's a drag. I do this all the time. And thinking about stepping back, how do we automate that? So, that's an example in, in just your own kind of per, personal to do list. If you think about it from a company standpoint, if you think about how many more hours can you add to a day, um, to your work day, Many people and many people are experiencing this now, which is, you know, maybe that went up 20, 30%. If you think about the pressures to grow a business, you can't add. You know you can't meet the, the growth targets by just adding time, and often you can't even do it by adding people. There are disproportionate gains to stepping back and going, okay, where can we fundamentally improve about the business? We did several benchmarks around this um, with with companies that we helped on lean and agile transformations, and you know there were companies would come back to us and say, you know, based on our own metrics, we're making two times the progress that we used to, and we had one one company that came back to us and said we're almost four times more uh, effective at the work that we're doing. Four times meaning we're creating four times more value. Same amount of work. In fact, they sort of sheepishly would admit, yeah, we actually, I think, are not working as many hours as we used to. Um, but when you focus that work and when you reframe it from not just getting the to-dos done, but really asking the question, what is the to-do going to move the company toward? What's the outcome? It uh, in, invites a whole other conversation. and and it's really powerful, you know. The the product and technology leaders that I've uh, worked with and, and respect, the the question and, and the conversation that they facilitate that I think is the most powerful to get good at, is the conversation around what's doable and and de- and desirable, balancing the trade offs between what's the best way to do this and what's the most effective way to do this, and mm. understanding that that a lot of what we do. Uh, from a value standpoint and company building in the work is is not linear. It's not on a Gaussian curve. It, mm. it tends to be on a power law. So there will be two or three things that have a disproportionate impact of the progress you can make as a business. The challenge in entrepreneurship is it's super fuzzy initially what those are. Like only in retrospect will you know, oh, well, that was a game changer. It's <laughs> It's basically impossible to predict looking forward what the game changers are going to be. The the challenge is, is to continually sort of tinker around and experiment to understand, to set yourself up for those game changers and then have the systems in place so that you can learn from that and understand this action that I did had a direct correlation with this outcome that was disproportionate. And when you start to learn, and again, you, especially early on, you have no causality, but when you start to see those correlations, then you can ask the question, well, should I double down on these particular activities because they seem to have a disproportionate effect on the progress we're able to make as a business. Hmm. When you can get yourself to that level of discipline in company building, I think it, it changes so much about how you approach company building. It changes so much about this notion of it's not just about working harder. It's about understanding the the, the linkage between your actions and the outcomes. When you've understood that, when you have that linkage established, and again, it can change over time. But with that linkage and some evidence around it, you know where to focus that, that will have the biggest outcomes for the business. And and yeah, if, let's say if you take a company and say, and one of the kind of recommendations I have and models that I've worked out on that cadence of working, another distinction is working on the business versus in the business. So in the mm-hmm. business is doing the to-dos, on the business is the improvement around how the business operates, or the people within the business, and self-improvement—you um, know—for these companies that we would have these radical transformations on their ability to make progress. When we did the math, depending on kind of what practices they picked up and and their their efficiency around them, we were kind of talking somewhere between six to ten percent of their time being spent working on the business rather than in the business. And the question I ask is: Would you trade? take 10% of your time that you're working in the business, shift it to working on the business. And if you do it well, you may get two to four times back in overall uh, productivity in the business. Um, Seems like a great trade to me. It's not an easy trade to make because to do that well requires this constant journey of continual improvement. Um, But if you go on that journey, it is possible to to make that trade-off.
1: Do you actually try to set aside ten percent of your time for working on the business? Is how do you structure that?
0: Yeah, to me, it's around because it's not just sort of the vague. Well, I'm gonna, you know, this is my hour this week to work on the business. The way that I think about it is, you know, what are the, what are the integrating events? What are the things that you do that um, help you work on the business? And often, how you think about planning. Uh, is a huge role in that. Uh, you know, I've got a bunch of thoughts on how companies should think about the different levels of planning that they're doing and how to orchestrate those together. For large organizations, that has a disproportionate impact. Uh, for smaller organizations, it's really in the establishing uh, again initial correlation, and then eventually stronger correlation between what actions in the business lead to disproportionate positive progress in the business and there are a series of ceremonies that you can do around that, uh, which is a fancy word for meetings, uh, that enable you to build those practices that create that linkage. You know then there's the personal side, which is you know there's some organizations that you know they'll carve out 15, twenty percent time for hackathons or for skill development. Um, I think that's also an easy kind of first place to go from a taking action standpoint. Often it's really hard to sell into organizations because the, again, we talk about kind of, uh, you know, the safety of the of the people and psychological safety. Usually the answer when I would propose that, the answer you'd get back is, what do you mean? I'm going to like just give the team an extra 10% time and wh- how do I know what they're going to be doing? Are they going to be, you know, just messing around, taking the time off? and. Mm. Again, there are simple techniques that you can employ, um, which creates an environment where, yeah, maybe they do take the time off. I would ask the follow-on question, so what? Um, if they're creating <laughs> results that you want of the team, uh, how important it is it that, that they're literally clocking in and, and you're, you're managing every minute of, of their time? Um, but again, that's that shift to thinking about motion versus progress. It has a huge impact on leaders and managers because how you create the container for progress is how you is different than how you create the container to maximize motion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, that was just so succinctly and well put. It kind of just stopped me in my tracks.
0: And, and so many of our modern management techniques, um, and when I say modern, I'm really you know thinking of Fred Taylor and scientific management over you know about 110 years ago. Um, a lot of those techniques are still used, and that's really about the techniques to maximize motion and i think that shift to thinking about how do we understand what leads to maximizing the progress the business can make is a really powerful reframe that changes a lot of how we manage the organization how we lead people how we think about the 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 work environment that we're creating uh, our interaction with customers our interactions with uh, our shareholders uh, I think there's some really critical reframes that happen because of that that change in thinking,
1: yeah, you can see it is that the the Fred Taylor's scientific management you know it's very much based in the the mechanistic thought that was the dominant thought a hundred years ago, and we are increasingly thankfully moving back towards a a um more systems emergent synergistic approach to to thought and thinking and how things interplay with one another and they're they're more than the sum of their parts.
0: Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, in that original work, there was so much belief. I mean, it was really framed around the manager knows better. The person managing the work is in a better position to make decisions than those doing the work. And I, you know, to me, that, that thinking is so outdated um, in the context of the work that most people do today. And again, the the mindset that it's not an and or in the relationship between employee and and a, uh, and, and the leader is, the idea that <clears throat> the person doing the work is is the closest to the work. Mm. The person leading the work may have experience and patterns and understanding of how to create the container to enable the best work to be done that, that's possible. And to me, that's a, a shift because, you know, if you think about the Fred Taylor days, literally the manager's job was to kind of stand there with a stopwatch and think about the, you know, Clocking the time the, the, in lean, it's called tack time, which is uh, sort of the arrival rate of work, and then also calculating the cycle time, which is just how quickly could the work get done? Worker get done with some some uh, type of piecework. Well, in, in modern work today, at least the people that I work with, I think of them more like artists and athletes than I do um, kind of this manual labor kind of notion, which is. You know, how do you, yeah, with an athlete, you can stand there and and hold a stopwatch, but you're not holding the stopwatch on their training approach. You're holding the stopwatch on the outcome. Right. If you think of an artist, what does it even mean to like hold a stopwatch and measure how an artist gets done? (laughs) Again, there's practices though, because without some constraints, art doesn't happen. Without the pressure to ship and to deliver, art never, you know, sees the light of day in, in the world. And, you know, there's, so there's balance here and there's constraints here, but um, I tend to be more inspired by athletes and artists as I work with entrepreneurs than I am a- around some of those original um, or 100-year-old management techniques. Yeah,
1: I would say they're not typically very inspiring. But I mean, no. for me, this speaks very much to servant leadership, right? It's not about the leadership. It's about the work being done and empowering people to your point to do the best work of their lives. Yeah. Um, and, and fundamentally, that servant leadership approach or mindset is essential in creating that psychological safety that enables people to, to do the work well and, and, and to, to thrive doing it.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, one, one piece I would add on to that just from my own experience was initially when I came to servant leadership, the idea, which I think the, the part of it that's, that's often easiest to approach is this notion that the leader is serving the team. The leader is there to to remove the obstacles, to understand, um, you know, what the team is going through, to create the space for the team to work. And a colleague of mine um, who, you know, just an amazing colleague, she said, well, there's two dimensions. There's lead by serving and serve by leading. Mm, And it was that second part that I was like, oh, that's the piece I'm not doing a lot of, which is as a leader, setting the context, you know, leading, setting the direction, elements of the vision, integrating the insights I have with the insights that the team has. And, and that leadership is also an act of service.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think that is a that is an important thing to consider when you think about servant leadership, because you can't you can't just give up the direction right you have to you have to take that on so that people can focus on what they need to focus on but uh, when you come at that from a perspective of of how are we serving the organization the customers through this direction that's a different approach than what's what direction is going to make me look good
0: right yeah and, and that's part of that um, you know we're human it's natural to do that uh, and that's that you know projection of i need to show up as who people who, who I'm thinking people want me to be in this moment rather than uh, showing up as I truly am. And it's human nature to do that in all contexts.
1: Yeah. One question I like to ask to end the conversation is if there are any resources that you recommend, whether they're books, talks, courses uh, that relate to the things we've talked about today and the how of running a business
0: yeah it's kind of a joke that that people have with me, which is whenever I talk to you I'll, I'll get another like ten book recommendations uh, apparently it's a liability <laughs> of of conversations with me um, probably the 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 one thing that i I encourage you know if you're interested in this um, reframe around uh, you know productivity rather than motion the, the some of the concepts that we've been talking around around kind of the agile mindset uh, there's a fantastic book it's probably I'm guessing in a work context, the number one book that I've recommended um, uh, more than any other book, which is This Is Lean. Mm. And it's a, a really small read. So on, on, you know, on the benefit side, uh, it's really quick to get through. I You can also read it four or five times and continue to get things out of it. It's kind of one of those magical books. Um, but in my mind, that um, is one of the best books out there around thinking through this reframe the way that they make the distinction, I make the distinction between motion and progress. The way that they talk about it is um, uh, resource efficiency versus flow efficiency. I tend not to use that language so much because it uses some kind of inside. It's baseball, really clinical. Kind of lean, yeah, yeah, some real lean terms. Um yeah. But that's the the dichotomy that they really play with in that book. And to me, I, I reframe it as the 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 kind of, a trap that we can fall into of being so focused on motion and not really being thinking uh, be thinking about progress, um, and it's a little bit of an obscure book, um, but uh, again, it's it's pretty easy to find, and I I think it's one of the best books ever written on an overview, a survey of of what does it mean to to make this transformation from building a business using you know hundred year old techniques to building a business using. Uh, fairly modern and kind of more human-centered ways of building a business.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Um, I've actually never read it, but I've heard about it enough that I'm familiar with it and it's time to read it. uh it's a good it, one. it does feel like, it feels like a staple. Thank you, Zach. Well, I always enjoy talking with you. I love your business sensibility and the way that you explain things and just how we can, it just felt like such a seamless, uh, seamless kind of weaving in between things that often don't get woven together. Uh, and so I, I always thoroughly enjoy talking with you about these things. Thanks for coming today.
0: Yeah, likewise. I always enjoy our conversations.
1: Thanks for listening to Greater Than. Show notes are available on the podcast page on our website, wearewhole.co. That's we Co. If you enjoy this conversation, leave a review where you stream your podcast and share it with others who might like it too.